I'll start with a question for you to think about just for a moment. The question is, are you at peace? Or do you feel agitated, uneasy, maybe unsettled about something? Many of us do feel agitated, uneasy, and unsettled. And we can try lots of different things to try and deal with that lack of peace that we feel. We can try to distract ourselves with work or with entertainment. We can treat ourselves with shopping and holidays. We can drug ourselves. We can try to convince ourselves to think positive, reassuring thoughts. There are lots of different prescriptions for dealing with our lack of peace. But none of the prescriptions I've just mentioned really get to the heart of the matter for us. They're all surface solutions. They don't deal with the roots of our unease and our agitation. To truly be at peace, we need to know that our life matters. And we need to know our life is based on a firm foundation. Isn't that true? If we think that our life is ultimately meaningless, if we think it has no firm foundation, then no amount of distraction, no amount of positive self-talk is going to deal with our agitation and our unease. Any reprieve will only be temporary for us. Unless we know our life has meaning and it has a firm foundation, any peace we find is going to be short-lived. And the good news is, the very good news, that as we turn to John's Gospel this morning, we find the risen Jesus addressing those two needs we have for meaning and a firm foundation. The risen Jesus says to his first disciples and he says to us, peace be with you. And in the passage we're going to look at, Jesus provides two weighty reasons for us to have peace. Turn with me to John chapter 20. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1089. In the larger print Bibles, 1686. John chapter 20, and we'll read from verse 19 down to the end of the chapter in verse 31. The context here is that chapter 20 began with Mary Magdalene finding the empty tomb early on Sunday morning, the first day of the week. Then Peter and John came, and they verified that the tomb was empty. Then after Peter and John left, Mary met the risen Jesus. And she did as Jesus instructed her to do. She went and told the other disciples, I have seen the Lord. We pick up now at verse 19 on that same day. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. 
The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. This is God's Word. And it gives us two reasons for followers of the risen Jesus to have peace. Now, the New Testament as a whole gives us more than two reasons, but here we find two. The first is in verses 19 to 23. God is carrying on his mission of salvation through us. That's what these verses are telling us, but the opening of this section shows us a bit of a gloomy situation. Verse 18 described Mary passing on the good news I have seen the Lord. But verse 19 shows Mary's news has not made much impression on this group. There doesn't seem to be much peace or joy in this locked room. In fact, we're told there's fear. And the reason is, these disciples are well known as associates of Jesus. And so it's to be expected that Jesus' enemies will now go after his disciples. And Mary's report has not been enough to offset the disciples' trepidation. They're still keeping the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. But all of that changes when the risen Jesus himself comes and stands among them. He pronounces peace to them. He shows his scars to them proving he's the same person that they knew before the cross. 
And the end of verse 20 tells us the result of this first-hand encounter with Jesus. It's joy. But Jesus immediately shows he hasn't come for a party with his disciples. Last week we heard him tell Mary he is on his way back to his Father in heaven. His time with Mary and the others is going to be brief. And in the time Jesus has with his followers, one of his priorities is to commission them, to give them their mission. And that's what he does in verse 21. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Jesus reminds his followers that he came to earth on a mission. He did not come on a sightseeing tour. He had a very definite work to do on earth. And he was sent on that work by his Father. John's Gospel has has made Jesus' mission very clear to us. He came to bring salvation to the world. He achieved that through his death on the cross. And now he is returning to his Father... But that doesn't mean the mission is over. On earth, Jesus carried out phase one of the mission. And now from heaven, Jesus will continue his mission through his followers. They're not going to be given a separate mission. Their work will be phase two of the mission. Or more accurately, Jesus' work through his followers will be phase two of the mission. The disciples are not to start something new. They are to carry on the work Jesus began. We'll see in a moment what that involves. But first, Jesus reassures his followers by letting them know their mission is connected to his. And the connection is not just that they're being sent by Jesus just as he was sent by the Father. It's more than that. The same power that fueled Jesus' work in phase one of the mission, that same power will fuel the disciples' work in phase two of the mission. Back in chapter one, John the Baptist explained how when he baptized Jesus, the Spirit came down from heaven as a dove and remained on Jesus. It was evidence Jesus' work was done in the power of the Holy Spirit. And here, right after he commissions his disciples, verse 22 says, Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. What is this? Is this moment the arrival of the Holy Spirit? Well, no, it's not. The book of Acts describes the arrival of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, which is sometime after this. This is a prophetic promise from Jesus. When the Old Testament prophets brought God's promises to his people, they often acted out part of their message. Their message came not just in words, but also with symbolic actions that drove home the message. If you want to see examples of that, read the book of Ezekiel or Hosea, and you'll find examples. Here in John's Gospel, in fact, back in chapter 13, Jesus performed a symbolic action. 
a prophetic promise. You remember he washed his disciples' feet. And he did that to show how he would wash away his people's sin on the cross. And here, his breathing on them is another symbolic prophetic action. The background to what Jesus does is that the Hebrew word for spirit also means breath or wind. So it makes sense that Jesus would illustrate the promise of the Holy Spirit by breathing on them. And the significant point is these disciples are not being sent on their mission alone and unequipped. The same divine power that rested on Jesus to empower his mission will rest on them to empower their mission. As they carry on the work Jesus began, God's power will be at work through them. But what is the work they've been given to do? Jesus explains it in verse 23. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, if we were to take this statement out of its context, we might think Jesus is setting his disciples up here as some sort of council. A council that gets to decide who receives salvation. But if we pay attention to the context here, we realize that is not what this is about. We've already seen the disciples' mission and our mission as Jesus' disciples today, that mission is not a separate work from what Jesus himself did. It's phase two of his work. And we know that in phase one, he achieved salvation by dying on the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So what is phase two of the mission? Phase two of the mission is the announcement of what Jesus has done. God's mission through us centers on proclaiming forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus. Every time we do that, we are presenting people with a choice. Admit your sin, trust in what Jesus has done to deal with your sin, and you will be forgiven. If you refuse to do that, your sins will not be forgiven. So here Jesus is giving his his followers the authority to say, Jesus the crucified Savior is the only Savior. Your salvation depends on what you do with him. Now, ultimately, it is God himself who forgives sins or not. You can see that actually in verse 23. Their sins are forgiven means their sins are forgiven by God. And they are not forgiven means they are not forgiven by God. The church is not a council that decides those things. But... The church has been given authority by God to proclaim Jesus as the only way to forgiveness. And people are forgiven or not, depending on how they respond to the message proclaimed by the church. On the screen it says, our mission centers on proclaiming forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus. 
And it's worded that way because, of course, there are other things we are to do. One of the most obvious other things is to love one another. Jesus gave that command back in chapter 13. Jesus gave other commands too to his followers. So we cannot reduce the church's mission down to nothing more than proclaiming a message about forgiveness of sins. But equally, Jesus' commission here leaves us in no doubt at all, the heart of our mission is a message about forgiveness of sins. Whatever else we do as followers of Jesus, this message must always be the central thing. It must never be displaced. It must never be sidelined. The other things we do can greatly enhance the attractiveness of our message. But they must never take the place of the message. If we drop the message, or if we go quiet on the message, then we have abandoned our mission. No matter what else we might do. So yes, we must try to help people with all sorts of different needs. But it is not loving to care for men and women's material needs and financial and emotional and companionship needs. It is not loving to do all of that while neglecting their eternal need for God's forgiveness in Christ. Our loving mission in this world centers on proclaiming that message. And just going back to what we said at the beginning about our own need for peace. And how peace comes in part through knowing that our lives matter. Well, we've just heard Jesus announce in verse 21, peace be with you. And we've heard him connect that announcement of peace with the news that God is carrying on his mission of salvation through us. Could there be any greater proof that your life matters? If you're a Christian, you have a part to play in God's mission. This is not restricted to preachers. It's not restricted to gifted evangelists. It includes you if you're a Christian. Whatever your age is, whatever your situation, whatever your limitations are, and we all have different situations and different limitations, whatever those are for you, you are alive on this earth today because you have a part to play in God's mission. Do you realize that? God hasn't left you here just to keep up your garden. He has not left you here just to keep Tesco's in business or wherever else you shop. Now, maybe your particular role mainly involves praying or giving or inviting or setting up or welcoming or befriending. You may not find that you have lots of opportunities to proclaim the message, although we probably all have more opportunities than we notice. But each one of us have ways that we can support the mission of proclaiming forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus. 
And in our times of agitation and restlessness, isn't this something that gives us peace? To know we're not just marking time on earth. We're not just treading water. Not from God's perspective anyway. We are here to participate in the greatest mission there's ever been. Never mind the mission to Mars. This mission brings men and women reconciliation with Almighty God. It brings eternal life to those who are dead in their sins. And we are part of it. Here's a second reason this passage gives us to have peace. God has provided clear evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Thomas was not there the first time Jesus visited the locked room. We've met Thomas a couple of times before in John's Gospel. He has shown himself to be loyal to Jesus. He's also shown himself to be not afraid to speak up if something doesn't make sense to him. We don't know why Thomas was missing from the group the first time Jesus appeared. But it is not surprising that Thomas is not quick to believe it when the others tell him about it. After all, they were not quick to believe what Mary told them about her meeting with Jesus. When they tell Thomas in verse 23, we have seen the Lord, Thomas wants more than just their word for it. He doesn't deny that they've had an experience in that locked room. He doesn't deny they have met someone in that locked room. But if Thomas is going to believe that someone was the risen Jesus, then he first wants to see and touch the unique set of scars that Jesus had. Not just the scars in his hands that every victim of crucifixion had, but the distinguishing wound that Jesus had in his side. I don't know what your reaction is to this ultimatum from Thomas. Unless I see and touch the scars, I will not believe. Maybe we think Thomas is wrong to insist on such clear proof. But significantly, Jesus doesn't seem to think that. Because Jesus comes back just for Thomas. Look at verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. As we've gone through John's Gospel, we've noticed it contains seven signs through which Jesus revealed his glory. The seventh sign was foretold by Jesus way back in chapter 2. When Jesus cleared people out of the temple in Jerusalem, they said to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? 
Jesus' reply to them was, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And John explained the temple he had spoken about was his body. In other words, Jesus' resurrection is the climactic sign of who he is. And here, as Thomas sees the scars, as he realizes this is the same Jesus who died on the cross, as that truth dawns on Thomas, he realizes the full glory of the one who stands in front of it. Thomas has known Jesus for years at this point. And now, he finally sees Jesus in all his glory. Not just the beloved teacher, not just a miracle worker, but Lord and God. And as John writes this book, this is the realization he wants you and me to come to. As he writes this gospel, this book does not invite us to blind faith. It does not call us to just believe. This book invites us to join the dots and look at what they show us. The one who appeared to Thomas and the other disciples is the same Jesus who died on the cross and was buried in the tomb. The only conclusion then is that this risen Jesus is Lord and God. He is all that he claimed to be. His resurrection is the climactic sign of his glory. And look at what Jesus says next to Thomas in verse 29. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. It's important to realize Jesus is not saying it is better to believe without seeing. He is not saying Thomas's faith is somehow inferior because he saw and believed. Not at all. The point Jesus is making is, after this, believing without seeing will be the only way to believe. Later Christians will all come to believe through the testimony of these first Christians who have seen and believed. So it is not better to believe without seeing, but neither is it worse. Jesus took such care to show himself to Thomas and the others, not only for their sake, but for our sake too. So we can hear their testimony and believe with confidence, just like they did. Look how John emphasizes that for us in verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. God has provided clear evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that evidence consists of eyewitness testimony. And as we all know, 
eyewitness testimony is not only important in the case of Jesus. Eyewitness testimony is how we have access to any truth in history. Archaeology can give us random artifacts from the past, but it is eyewitness testimony that tells us what happened in the past. And maybe you'd say, yes, of course, but the eyewitness testimony here in John's gospel is simply not believable. If that's the case for you then, are you saying you will only believe eyewitness testimony if it fits with your own limited experience? Have you no openness to testimony that goes beyond your narrow experience? I have never met God in the flesh. And I have never met God in the flesh raised from the dead. But am I wise to say God never could come in the flesh and be raised from the dead? Am I wise to say that could never happen just because it is outside my personal experience? Think for a moment of a very different situation. Think for a moment of the Holocaust. The murder of around six million Jews by the Nazis in the middle of the last century. A scholar called Richard Baucom has done a lot of work on eyewitness testimony. And he points out the eyewitness testimony of Holocaust survivors confronts us with things that are so unfamiliar to us that they are just about unimaginable to us. They are way, way outside our own experience. So much so that when we read those testimonies, we want to say, that's not true. That couldn't happen. What we hear from eyewitnesses of the Holocaust is at the very outer limits of what we find credible. The things that went on in the Holocaust were so exceptional, we have little or no personal experience we can compare them to. In fact, one lady who has compiled the testimonies of Holocaust survivors says they had the same experience themselves. They arrived at the Nazi death camps expecting the worst. But they did not expect the unthinkable. And that is our experience when we read the testimonies of those survivors today. We come to read them expecting the worst. We do not expect the unthinkable. And yet that is what we find. We find horrors that even in a world full of horrors are so exceptional, so at the limit that we can scarcely begin to imagine them. And yet, 
you and I must find room for what those Holocaust survivors tell us. No matter how much their testimony is beyond our experience, we cannot afford to write off that testimony. We cannot afford to dismiss it as impossible. Because if we do, we are saying that history has no permission to surprise us. We're saying that history can only really confirm what we already know. We're saying that every time history describes things that are beyond our own personal experience, we will disbelieve history. Now, I go to the, the trouble to mention that particular example of Holocaust survivors because it has a connection with what we're dealing with here in John's Gospel. Now, of course, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the murder of six million Jews are two very, very different things. But they do have this one thing in common. They are both beyond the limit of our own experience. And for that reason, they are both almost beyond our ability to credit. But we cannot, for that reason, just dismiss those who bear testimony to those events. We are as foolish to dismiss the eyewitness testimony in the case of the resurrection as we are to dismiss it in the case of the Holocaust. The wise way to deal with eyewitness testimony is not to say, I'll not believe it if it's outside my experience. No, the wise thing to do is to consider the eyewitness. And to ask the question, do I have reason to believe this eyewitness is trustworthy? Worthy of my trust? Do the mundane details of their testimony check out? Does the ordinary stuff in their testimony hold up? If it does, well then, I have no reason to doubt the rest of what they say. Just because I haven't experienced it myself. And there is something additional in the case of the eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Many of them died because of the message of resurrection they proclaimed. Now we know, of course, that lots of people make up stories. That happens all the time. But those people are not willing to be executed for their made-up stories. On the other hand, people who have found the truth will hold on to it even when it costs them. The fact that these eyewitnesses held to their story even when it cost them their lives, that just gives further credibility to their story. So if you are a Christian, the more carefully you examine the eyewitness testimony of the New Testament, the more at peace you can be. That your life is based on a firm, truthful foundation. You never need to fear a closer look at the New Testament. It will always hold up to a closer look. And the closer you look, the more peace you can have. 
about the firm foundation you are building your life on. And if you are not yet a Christian, it's time to think a bit more carefully about your unbelief. Have you fallen into the trap of making your own limited experience the measure of all things? That is a dangerous place to be. It might cause you to miss out on the greatest truth in history. The truth that God the Son came to earth to save us. That he died on the cross for our sins. And that he rose again. Proving himself to be Lord and God. Believing that truth. Committing ourselves to the risen Jesus results in life in his name. The eternal life of God's kingdom. Don't miss out on that. As Christians, we have the peace that comes from knowing our lives matter. God is carrying on his mission of salvation through us, as incredible as that is. And we have the peace that comes from knowing our lives are based on a firm foundation. God has provided clear evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. God the Son has come to earth. He has made the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. He has risen again as the first fruits of our own resurrection. We're going to respond to this truth by praising the God who has done all this. So let's join together to sing, To God be the glory, great things he has done.
Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Amen.